following message from Pastor Kit Johnson comes to you from LifePoint Baptist Church in Apple Valley, California, where we pray that God's Word is a real blessing to you. Matthew 7 today, so took a week off for Thanksgiving last week, and we'll uh, jump back into Matthew today. We're getting close to the end, and... Uh, Our text for this morning is verses 12 through 14. Matthew chapter 7 and verse 12. We'll go ahead and read that to begin today. It says in verse 12, In everything, therefore, treat people the same way you want them to treat you. For this is the law and the prophets. Enter through the narrow gate. For the gate is wide, and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small, and the way is narrow that leads to life. And there are few who find it. So two, uh, several weeks ago, it's been, I don't know how long it's been now, uh, but several weeks ago, uh, we, uh, we were in chapter 6, and I joked in my introduction uh, that you were going to get two sermons for the price of one. And, uh, and I mentioned that because we went through two sections that Sunday on forgiveness and fasting that, that didn't really have a whole lot of connection to each other, uh, but just um, for practical purposes, we, we dealt with them. And, and we're going to kind of do the same thing again today, because, because we're going to look at two sections here, uh, verse 12 and, and verses 13 and 14, I'll just tell you right now, don't really have a whole lot to do with each other. So, so for one, uh, verse 12 uh, concludes the body of the Sermon on the Mount, And it summarizes the message that Jesus has been communicating really all the way back since chapter 5, verse 17. So it summarizes the the true righteousness that Jesus demands of His disciples. And then we're going to see that there really is a major shift that takes place in the Sermon on the Mount, beginning with verse 13 and extending through the end of the sermon in verse 27. So Jesus is going to close with three appeals to respond to the message that he has preached with faith and repentance. So so we're going to cover again kind of two pretty distinct sections today um, that that I don't think necessarily warranted two separate sermons, Uh, but I'm confident that that we can give both of them their due and we'll still get you out of here on time. So, So once again, be happy that you get a bargain, all right? You get two sermons for making your way to one church service, all right? So first of all, let's begin with verse 12, where Jesus simply commands us to love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor. So again, verse 12, we'll read it again, says, in everything, therefore, treat people the same way you want them to treat you, for this is the law and the prophets. Now, of course, we all know this verse as what? We we know it as the golden rule, right? And so this is a very famous statement. It's one of the most famous ethical principles that probably has ever been articulated. Uh, not just within Christianity, but within pagan philosophies and secular philosophies. I was actually watching a basketball game uh, this week, and, and uh, Dick Vitale cited the, the golden rule uh, while he was announcing a basketball game. And so we all know this rule, and uh, you've probably known it for years, and Maybe your parents quoted it to you when you were getting, not getting along with your siblings, and you've quoted it to other people, but, but you maybe have, have never thought about where the golden rule fits 
within the Sermon on the Mount. So so notice here uh, that verse 12 concludes with the part of this verse that we don't necessarily think about that much by saying this is the law and the prophets. And really that statement uh, really uh, uh, reminds us or, or reflects back to the beginning of the body of the Sermon on the Mount back in chapter 5, verse 17. So, so turn back there, and I just want to review what, what Jesus said in verses 17 to 20. All right, so Jesus said, Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. So so there in verse 17, Jesus boldly claims that he is the fulfillment of of the law and the prophets. And, uh, and then, at the end of verse 20, he, he boldly demands that his disciples pursue a righteousness that exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. And then we've seen, as we've worked our way through the body of the sermon, that Jesus describes this higher righteousness that we are to pursue in chapter 5, verse 21, all the way through chapter 7, verse 11. And and on this side of the study, I think we would all agree that Jesus has demanded a lot. Like when he says a righteousness that exceeds the scribes and Pharisees, we're thinking, yeah, this is an extremely high standard. And now, at the end of all of it, in chapter 7, verse 12, he pulls everything he has said together into this simple but weighty rule of life by which you can identify the true righteousness that Jesus demands of you. You are to treat others the way that you want to be treated. So so because of that, we we need to understand that the golden rule is not just a a cute little proverb or or a a, a wise rule of thumb that, that, that is good to apply in certain scenarios and maybe not so much in others. No, no, Jesus is saying, that this is a key summary of the conduct that Jesus expects from His disciples. So this is a command that He expects you, if you are a Christian, to obey. So so with that in mind, let's talk about this standard. Jesus says again, treat people the same way that you want them to treat you. Now, Now, for as popular as this rule is, Let's just be honest with ourselves and say that that's not normally how, how we want to think. Like, like the rule of life that we all want to live by is treat people the way they treat me. Right? So if they do something to me, that's how I'm gonna, what I'm going to do to them. I mean, we all like mercy. We all like love when we're the ones who need mercy. And when we are the ones that need love. But when someone wrongs me, well, all of a sudden, I become a lover of justice and righteousness. And, but, but remember, uh, turn back or look back at chapter 5 and remember what Jesus said in, in verses 38 through 42. 
And I think this is an important text for understanding the golden rule. Chapter 5, verse 38, he says, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other to him also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks of you, and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. Now, now there's some complex things going on in these verses, and we talked about you know, the ethical issues of self-defense and things of that nature uh, when we walk through this text. But, but at its core, remember that, that this text is condemning our natural desire for vengeance. You know, that naturally, we want, to, we want to exact justice from those who hurt us. But Jesus says instead that we should be gracious and generous, even towards people who hurt us. And really, what the golden rule is doing is it's reaffirming that, that idea of generosity and grace instead of justice, or, or vengeance, really. So, so don't let your marriage fall into the trap of playing tit-for-tat. You know, or you keep record of everything that you did that your wife uh, should, should reward you for, or your husband, and, or, or where you also keep track of everything that he or she has done wrong, and, and so you demand vengeance from each other, or, or, or strict justice from each other. You know, and, and don't play childish games with, with your friends, your family, co-workers, and so forth, where, where you point fingers, hold grudges, and, and complain that he started it. No, instead... In both texts, Jesus is urging us to be gracious. Treat people not the way they treat us, but the way you want to be treated yourself. You know, one reason why why this is such a a useful standard is because we all love ourselves, right? And we all are very good at looking out for ourselves. Since the moment you were born, you have spent your whole life looking out for yourself, and thinking about yourself. So, so, so in fact, in Ephesians chapter 5, I think interestingly, verses 28 and 29 apply the golden rule and this natural love of self to marriage. So Paul says, Husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ also does the church. So so despite what psychologists want to tell us, none of us have a problem with loving ourselves or or not loving ourselves enough. We all love ourselves. Now, now some people don't apply that love for self wisely and they do stupid things, but we all love ourselves. We all look out for me. And, And Ephesians 5 then commands husbands to love their wives the same way. Just like you passionately seek your own good, you should passionately seek the good of your spouse. And of course, the golden rule extends that same concept to, to loving all people. I mean, think even of the second great commandment. What does it say? You are to love your neighbor as yourself. So, so I am to love others with the same passion with which I love myself. So so consider the fact, again, that we all nourish and cherish ourselves. That's what Paul says in Ephesians 5.28. 
We don't forget about our own prosperity and comfort. We don't forget to, to take care of ourselves. We, we are deeply invested. I, I am deeply invested and you are deeply invested in your own well-being. And, and we aggressively pursue these things. And, and Jesus says, that's how you should care for your spouse, your family, your neighbor, your coworker, everyone else. That, that we should aggressively pursue the good of other people with the same passion with which we pursue our own good. Now, now this also raises another interesting tidbit about the golden rule. And specifically, that is that Jewish rabbis and even pagan philosophers uh, had taught various forms of the golden rule for a long time. So, so for example, Rabbi Hillel, one of the most famous teachers in Judaism, in, in AD 20, so, so previous to the Sermon on the Mount, said this. He said, what is hateful to you Do not do to anyone else. This is the whole law. All the rest is commentary. So so Jesus did not invent the concept of using self-love as a standard by which we evaluate our love for other people. But but notice that there is something very different about Hillel's rule and Jesus. because, Because Hillel again says, What is hateful to you, do not do to someone else. So all he does is prohibit harming someone in a way that you would not want to be harmed. So don't steal from people. Don't slander them. Don't abuse them. Things like that. And of course that's good, right? Like we shouldn't steal from people and hurt them. But, but it's not all that difficult. I mean, after all, even if I despise someone, it's really not that hard to not actively pursue their hurt. All I have to do is refrain. But Jesus takes that principle to a much higher level. Because he doesn't just say, don't pursue their hurt. He says that I am to pursue their good. I am to care for their needs. And when you really begin to ponder what that means, it is a high standard. Jesus says, I need to love people. I need to care for them. I need to forgive their offenses against me, provide for their needs, and I need to do so to the degree that I would want them to do for me. To the degree that I do so for myself. And folks, that really is a weighty standard. When you think about pursuing the good of your spouse with the same gusto with which you pursue your own good, Doing the same for your parents, your children, your neighbors. It's it's pretty heavy. But notice that that that's not all. Notice the arena of the command. Jesus says that we must treat this people. And notice he prefaces the whole thing at the beginning of verse 12 by saying, in everything. And and so we ought to understand that phrase, in everything, really is talking about, or or really everyone, in light of what Jesus said at the end of chapter 5. So we read verses 38 to 42. Notice what Jesus goes on to say in in verses 43 to 47. He says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. 
For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? So so Jesus there tells us again that there is no glory in loving a friend. Because even pagans do that. Even the worst people love people who who take care of them and are kind to them. No, he says we have to go further. And we must love our enemies, pray for our enemies, and be generous towards our enemies, just as our Heavenly Father is generous to all people by sending rain and good gifts even to the unjust. And the golden rule is saying essentially the same thing. That we must treat everyone in everything as we want to be treated. Now we talked, of course, this summer about the fact that that doesn't mean that you just open your wallet to a thief. Right? Or, or, or that uh, you never exercise tough love against someone that, that needs to be responsible or make better decisions. It's not saying that you can never defend yourself, or or things like that. Of course, it's also true that you can't fix every problem. Every guy that you see that has a need, you you can't necessarily meet every need and also fulfill your other responsibilities. So, of course, we have to put certain qualifiers on all of this. But, But even with all those things, this standard, folks, is very high. Jesus demands that we develop generous, gracious hearts that aggressively seek the good of all people. And even that ungrateful, bitter jerk who you just want to wring his neck. I mean, we are to pursue the good of all people. Now, now I, and again, I mean, this is hard. It's hard. You know, I mean, think about the fact that our society, I mean, our society loves to talk about love. It loves to talk about uh, being generous and giving and you know, this week, I mean, how, I don't know how many times I saw so-and-so donated 200 turkeys to this, and this guy over here donated 500 turkeys. And, you know, and so we love to talk about generosity and giving and kindness as a society. But for as much as people talk about love and mercy, I mean, very few people have any genuine interest in living up to the standard that Jesus sets. I mean, we fiercely guard our turf. People slander their enemies and and bite anyone who ticks them off. So so we do not live by the golden rule as a a culture. And as Jesus will say in verses 13 and 14, the way of discipleship is truly narrow. And it's not just because the gospel is, is offensive and exclusive in many respects. No, it's also because the demands of righteousness that Jesus puts on His people are are well beyond what most people are interested in pursuing. But of course, if you are a Christian because of the new life that you have in Christ, you can do this. You know, if you are in Christ, you can treat people the way you want to be treated. So so this is one of those verses that, that we could easily look at and say, wow, that is really awesome. And there is no way I am ever getting there. So let's just kind of put that one to the side because that is unattainable. 
And folks, if you are born again, if you are in Christ, that is simply not the case. You, you can do this. So take it to heart, believing that you can live this rule in the power of Christ. And then one other thing regarding verse 12. Again, notice that the verse concludes by saying, this is the law and the prophets. And the idea here is the same as several other New Testament statements. That God's fundamental demand is that we love Him with all of our hearts. And that we love our neighbor as ourselves. And so everything else, every other rule in Scripture, really is just simply defining what it means to love God and what it means to love my neighbor. And so what verse 12 is doing here is it's simply setting up the golden rule as a key standard that you can use to to know what it means to love my neighbor. That that if I love my neighbor, I, I will treat him the way I want to be treated. And of course, as we live this out as a church, we can create a beautiful, wonderful community of care and love and unity. You know, and I'm so thankful for, for lots of people in our church that, that live this verse. They are generous. They are gracious and giving. And we all benefit as we pursue that standard, right? Of course, we can always do better. You know, just imagine how, how every bit of strife every hole in our care as a church would would evaporate if all of us consistently lived this verse. The same goes for your other relationships. I mean, if you and your spouse consistently live this verse, the conflicts in your marriage will go away. The same goes for your family and other relationships. So by the grace of God and the resurrection power of Jesus, Commit to live this verse. And do not, conduct, do not filter your conduct fundamentally through, through the grid of what serves me. No, instead, filter your conduct through the love of Christ. Treat people the way you want to be treated. So, so maybe right now, think about that person in your life that is a burr in your side. You know, they're, they're a goat head in your foot, to put it in desert terms. And, and, and you just, you do everything you can to avoid them, stay away from them. When they come up, you look for ways to slip in a pot shot. And, and understand that Jesus says, He demands of you, that you love them, that you treat them the way you want to be treated. And go after them with the grace and the generosity that Jesus demands from his followers. So that's sermon number one. All right, love your neighbor. And then sermon two comes in verses 13 and 14, where Jesus urges us to follow Christ on the narrow road of discipleship. And so verse 13 again says, Enter through the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. So, so notice that, that this is the first of three paragraphs that, that close the Sermon on the Mount by urging us to respond positively to the call of discipleship. And, and so all three of these paragraphs, so verses 13 and 14, then verses 15 through 23, and then verses 24 through 27, all three of them say that, that every person on earth has two choices. 
Or, or, or two ways they can go. We can choose the way of discipleship, which leads to eternal joy, or we can choose the way of rebellion that leads to judgment. So, so I think it's important to just say that, that Jesus in these paragraphs is primarily speaking to those who have never been born again, and he's calling the lost to be saved and, and to give their lives to Christ. Uh, but of course, he also has plenty to say here for those of us who are saved, that we need to stick to the path, no matter how difficult and, and, and frustrating it may get at times. And so the first plea here is found in verses 13 and 14, which contrast two gates and two ways. And so I should mention, uh, when you look at these two verses, um, you know, I, I tend to be a visual thinker, and maybe you are too. So you're trying to visualize what exactly uh, Jesus is describing here, and so there's some debate uh, about where the gate is. So is the gate at the beginning of the road, or is the gate at the end of the road? Uh, you know, is it a gate to the road, or is it a gate to heaven or to hell. And some believe uh, that Jesus is picturing two roads with two gates at the end of the road. You know, either a gate into heaven, a gate into hell. I think the better view is that Jesus is thinking of two gates at the trailhead. So, so you can imagine like some massive wall or, or some massive fence, all right? And there are two gates to get you through this wall. There's a wide gate and a narrow gate. And those two gates represent the choice between embracing Christ or rejecting Christ. And Jesus says, the gate you choose determines the entire course of your life. You can't choose the narrow gate, you know, and then say, hey, I got through the narrow gate, now I'm going to jump over to the wide lane, the, way, the wide way, and have a good time, and then just before I die, I'm going to bounce back over to the narrow way so I can go through the gate into heaven. No, no, the choice that you make, the gate that you choose, determines the entire course of your life, and of course, then it determines your eternal destiny. One path ends in glory, and the other path ends in destruction. And something else I really want to emphasize is that there really are only two gates. And so Jesus assumes that everyone, every person on earth, is going to choose between one gate or the other. So, so because of that, I think it's important to say that this is not a contrast between two smaller things, like, like, the, like a contrast between grace and legalism, or belief in God and belief in secularism. But because that would not uh, uh, subsum everyone who lives. No, no, no Jesus is talking uh, about all people. And He is saying the contrast is between the way of faith in and submission to Christ, and the way of rebellion against Christ, and confidence in self. So yes, it's true, there's lots of religions in the world, there's lots of worldviews, there's, there's people that are strict, you know, and they believe in, in God, and they believe in all sorts of acts of righteousness, and you've got secular people over here who are completely different. But Jesus says that any worldview, any religion, that does not bow to Scripture, and trust in Christ and Christ alone is a worldview in rebellion against God. And Jesus is clear, there are only two ways. You either receive Him and submit to Him, or you reject Him. So, so by the way, this is a great passage to use the next time you're sharing the gospel with someone, and they begin to talk about how there's a little bit of good in every religion. 
You know, and so I take a little bit of this view, and I take a little bit of that, and I just kind of meld them together. Or if someone says to you that they believe that all roads eventually lead to heaven, you can take them right here and say that Jesus disagrees with you. I mean, Jesus says there are two roads, and those roads lead to two destinies, not one. And so Jesus is clear about these choices. And so with that in mind, let's talk about the wide gate. And Jesus highlights three characteristics of the first of the wide way. First of all, he says that it is popular. It's popular. He says the gate is wide. The way is broad. And many enter by it. So Jesus here tells us right up front that most people are going to follow the, the, the way that goes to destruction. And, uh, and we all know that, that peer pressure is a powerful force, right? And if everyone is going a certain way, if everyone's doing something, you know, if the really smart people with all the, the letters after their name and teaching in the big universities, if they say something is true, then most people just say, well, it must be true. And if everyone's going that way, it must be the way to go. And so they just jump in and follow. And that's how most people evaluate truth. I mean, they're not really looking seriously at Scripture and evaluating it. They're just, if it's what everyone believes, it must be right. But I like uh, how D.A. Carson summarizes one of Jesus' main points. He says that democratic decisions do not determine truth and righteousness in the kingdom. And that's very true. Popular does not equal true. And just because everyone says something does not mean that it is trustworthy. So this way is popular. And secondly, Jesus says it is easy. Now, now he doesn't say that explicitly in verse 13, uh, but most believe that the concept of wide uh, regarding this way includes the idea of accommodating or easy or inviting. So for example, you know, you're you're driving, and um, I imagine this afternoon if you tried to to drive down, uh, down the hill, you would run into a lot of traffic. And you're stuck in traffic. You've ever been stuck in traffic? It's frustrating. It's irritating. And you're not going fast. And then you see a wide way open up. And, and no one's going there. And, and it's easy. And you can just put the cruise control on and go. It's accommodating. It's, it's attractive. And so that's one of the ideas uh, that, that's involved here. That, that the road is wide, meaning it's easy. I think as well, uh, we, we know that he means to say it's easy because verse 14 tells us that the narrow way is hard. So, so the word for narrow in verse 14 comes from a root that typically describes affliction or persecution. So if the narrow way is said to be hard, we ought to assume that the wide way is intended to be described as easy. So, so imagine you're again, you're outside this gate, you're outside this wall, and you've got two gates, and, and you poke your head over, you look through that gate, you poke your head through that over here and look through that gate, and uh, you look at these two ways, and the wide gate clearly looks more appealing. I mean, everyone is going that way. And even though everyone's going that way, there's still plenty of room for you. You can, you can go that way and have a good time. And, uh, and, and, and so most people choose that gate. And they make spiritual choices that appeal to their own fleshly desires. And it could be for a variety of reasons. It could take various forms. 
You know, not everyone that goes through the wide gate looks the same, do they? Some of them are going through the wide gate because they're pursuing legalistic religion and, and they like the idea of, of looking spiritual and righteous and, and earning their own way. You know, others are attracted to being their own boss, the secularist. They want to make up their own truth and make up their own morality, so they choose the wide gate because they don't want to submit to Christ. You know, other people, they go the wide way because they want respect. They want to fit in. They want to be respected, and so, so they follow this wide path. So, so there can be many reasons why people reject Christ and choose the popular easy way. But in the end, none of them are worth it. Because the third characteristic of the wide gate is that it leads to destruction. Now, Jesus doesn't give us any specifics, but in the context of Matthew, destruction is clearly a reference to eternal destruction in hell. So so this gate starts out looking really attractive. You know, it's wide. There's plenty of room for an easy journey. But Jesus warns that it is all a deceptive lie in the end that is intended to hide the destination. And he says here that the ease of the journey is not worth the final cost. And everyone who chooses this way will be horrified in the end. When they have gone down this smooth, easy, inviting path with scores of other people, and at the very end, it leads them through a gate of eternal destruction. So maybe you have been invited to receive Christ many times. I mean, you've spent years comparing the wide gate and the narrow way. And, uh, and for various reasons, you just keep clinging to the wide gate. And Jesus could not be clearer. What, whatever reason is in your mind why, why you do not want to receive Christ, it is not worth it. Whatever it is about that wide way that really appeals to you, it does not change the fact that the end of the road is is destruction, is hell. And so if you have never repented of your sins and believed on Christ for salvation, then be saved today. Because the path is not worth the end. So so choose to, to... to repent, believe on Christ, and, and, and then uh, with that, choose to receive the narrow way, to follow the way of life. And again, verse 14 goes on to describe this narrow way. And, and again, there's, there's three uh, adjectives that, or, or three ideas that, that come through. First of all, Jesus tells us in verse 14 that this way is unpopular. It's unpopular. And Jesus says this gate is small. And what's he say? He says there are few who find it. Now it's true that by the time we reach heaven, all right, the Bible tells us that when we are in glory, that we will be surrounded by, by multitudes from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. But it is also clear that in almost every age and in every place, Christ's disciples are easily outnumbered by those who reject Christ. And folks, we will always be in the minority. Now, none of that means that that we don't zealously desire the salvation of all people and and work towards mass evangelism. But I think we also should always remember that the idea that somehow we can make Christianity the the majority, culture-shaping viewpoint, folks, that is a fool's errand. 
It's not happening. We are on the narrow way. And if our way begins to be the way that that most people are going, we've probably messed up the way. It is a narrow way. And then secondly, or it's unpopular, secondly, it is difficult. It is difficult. So remember, again, that narrow in verse 14 comes from a root that that typically describes affliction or persecution. So verse 14 clearly says that the narrow way is hard. And Jesus never hid from that, right? I mean, He never tried to sell people on the idea that if you follow Me, I'll make you healthy and wealthy, I'll take away all your problems, and it'll be smooth sailing. No, No, Jesus was very clear throughout His ministry that his way is hard. He warns us time after time that following him will be costly, that it will lead to ostracism and pain. And it's good that he does that. Because the sooner we accept the fact that following Christ is not going to make my life easier, the sooner I just embrace the fact that my reward is in glory, it is not here then the more content I'll be in Christ and the better I will do serving my Savior. So so we just need to put out of our minds and out of our gospel presentations and out of our philosophies of ministry that that you can be a godly Christian and and enjoy all the ease and, and, and the respect and the popularity that the world holds out. Because Jesus tells us right here that's not the way it works. You know, life it's true that life in the Spirit is full of joy and blessing. But Jesus is clear, it will be hard. Following Christ will not be easy. But that's okay. Because the third characteristic of the narrow way is that it leads to life. Now, of course, that's a reference to heaven. And the Bible is clear that that heaven will be glorious and it will be worth every sacrifice. So, So this is sort of a silly illustration. But, but when I look at the narrow way, when I look at verse 14, I, I sort of think of it in terms of driving to Ironwood. Right? So, so you drive out to Ironwood, you get out on Interstate 15, you head north, and you're out in the desert, and there's not much there. And you're like, where in the world could I possibly be going? And then you get off on Harvard Road, and your GPS tells you to turn left on this little, bumpy, rough-looking dirt road. And you're sitting there, you look at this road, and you think, that road cannot possibly go anywhere profitable. But you think, well, my GPS tells me to go that way, and the GPS is never wrong. Wrong. And so you turn. And after about three miles of of banging down this road, and your brain has been turned into mush by all the bumps, you think, this is really a bad idea. Like, where in the world could I possibly be going? This road couldn't possibly go anywhere good. And then, of course, after a while, out comes the camp. And you're in a great place. And, of course, Ironwood and heaven are not the same thing. You know, every illustration breaks down at some point. But but hopefully you get the point. You know, I mean, you can think of the wide way is the way to Vegas. The narrow way, you know, way to Ironwood. So we'll, we'll just stop there. But, but, you know, that hopefully kind of helps bring to life a little bit of what Jesus is saying. Now, you compare the way to Vegas with Cherokee Road, they, they don't look very comparable. 
One looks a whole lot easier and a whole lot more inviting than the other. And you know, when you are presented with the Gospel, the way of the Gospel, repentance, submission, belief in an exclusive Savior, I don't want that. I want to have a good time. I want to enjoy myself. You know, so, so the two ways don't even look close to comparable as far as, as, as what you see in front of your eyes. But, but Jesus says the shape of the gate does not reflect the end game. And at the end of, of one road is destruction. At the end of that wide way it is a way of destruction and death. And the road of discipleship is a road that, that is lonely. It is rough. It's not all that exciting at times. But the destination is unimaginable glory. So if you have never been saved, Jesus begins this text in verse 13 with a command for you. He says, enter through the narrow gate. So yes, you know that, that road that's in front of you may look very hard. And Jesus does not pretend like it is anything else. But it will be worth it all when you see Christ. It will be worth it all. So, so I want to urge you to repent of your sin, submit your heart and your mind to Christ, believe the truth claims of Scripture, and be saved in Him. And so make the wise choice. A choice not based on what's right under your nose but a choice of faith that Christ is faithful to His promise and the narrow gate ends in glory. And if you are saved, be encouraged to keep going. You know, don't be intimidated by the fact that you know, you're over here with like five people and there's millions of people on the other road and think, man, we've we got to be wrong. You know, don't be intimidated or, or discouraged by, by the bumps in the road and, and the hard places and the big hills and and the sharp turns. Just keep going step after step, striving by God's grace to honor His Word and obey His will. And do so by faith. Because you see the destination at the end. That it is glory with Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this text. And we thank You for, well, really both texts and for the call to love our neighbor as ourself, and the call to follow Christ. And Father, I pray that everyone in this room would leave having entered through the narrow gate. And if there's any here that do not yet know Jesus as Savior, would you please convict them and bring them to salvation. And Lord, help us who are saved to walk by faith every day. And, and Father, help us to not see with our physical eyes uh, just merely the things that are in front of us, but help us to see with eyes of faith the glory that awaits us at the end. And, and Father, I pray, uh, I pray, dear Lord, uh, that, that you would give us grace to follow you, to obey your word, and to love people, to love our neighbor as ourselves. In Jesus' name, amen.